We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey guys, it's me. I just wanted to come to you to tell you about some of the things that we have going on here at the Timeline. First thing is an Aaron Baines video that Sam made recently that you can find on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, search the Timeline Sons on YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel and check out that video on Aaron Baines' impact in DeAndre Ayton's absence. The other thing you can find is a t-shirt that we released recently in the bio for that video. There's a link to purchase it. It is a hashtag shh shirt inspired by Kelly Oubre and the hashtag that Suns players have been using. Purchase that shirt if you would like. It would help us if you did uh, because it's nice support for us here at the podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Untuck It and Manscaped. Let's go. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. You think Steve Nash entered the arena? Well, no, no, that was just Devin Booker's arena. I know. And, and That's the last time I heard MVP chance. Well, because he's, he's putting his team in position for them to feel good about it and to chant it. And uh, he's earned that just based on his, his ability to show that he can be special. MVP, MVP, MVP. <laughs> Welcome to the timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. Wow, again, wow. I can start another podcast just with wow 
because wow. the Phoenix Suns just beat the only undefeated team left in the NBA, the Philadelphia 76ers, without Joel Embiid, which actually that's something to talk about. But Sam, what's your first reaction to this game? Well, two weeks in a row, Mike, that we get to start a podcast with the fact that the Phoenix Suns are the talk of the NBA. And you can already see the national writers are coming out with their takes tonight. Devin Booker is no longer an empty stats guy. He had 40 points tonight on 19 shots. A fantastic game uh, all around. And and look, I was really worried uh, around the start of the second half of this game that if the Suns wanted any chance of winning, it was looking like Devin Booker had to go nuclear. Yeah. But, you know, because I just wasn't trusting in some of the other players around him to make the plays that they needed to make. Credit to some of the other guys on this team who really stepped up in the second half. Ultimately, it was Booker who was the icing on the cake for the Suns. He really finished things off for them. But Rubio was hitting open threes in this game because the defense was collapsing off of him. Baines, Mm -hmm. obviously, continuing to be uh, just ridiculously hot from downtown. We we got to see Mikhail Bridges and Kelly Oubre do that thing at the three and the four. We got to see that lineup for extended yeah. minutes uh, in the fourth quarter, and we saw some great defense out of them. So it wasn't just Devin Booker. Continues to be a team effort for the Phoenix Suns, although obviously we should start with Booker because he uh, continues to be the engine of this offense. Devin Booker had, first of all, what does Devin Booker have against the city of Philadelphia? <laughs> because... He, going into this game, he was averaging 38 points in the last four games against the Philadelphia 76ers. And in this game, he increased that average because he scored more than 38 points in this game on only 19 shots. The idea of a guard scoring 40 points on 19 shots, less than 20 shots, is completely insane. You know, an effective field goal percentage of over 100%, essentially, because it's more than two points a shot. Obviously, he shot some free throws in this game. He was 7 for 7. The the uh, refs were kind of kind to the Suns in this game compared to normal. Not Still not a ton of free throws shot, but more than the 76ers for once. And this was a fascinating game. So as I talked about, no Joel Embiid on the 76ers. So the 76ers actually started Furkan Korkmaz, which was a surprise. Uh, Josh Richardson... Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, and Al Horford. And Al Horford was absolutely insane in this game. He is so good at basketball. Essentially everything that you can ask for a player to be good at and at seven feet tall. Uh, And they looked amazing, even without what many people consider their best player in Joel Embiid. They looked incredible throughout this game because Al Horford just was that guy. Uh, Tobias Harris started out the game really hot. And interestingly, Devin Booker took the the defensive assignment on Tobias Harris a lot in the second half with Kelly Oubre Jr. closing the game out once Devin Booker was too deep into foul trouble. And I think that shows some leadership with Devin Booker, who got the MVP chance. That's why I started the the podcast off with him, uh, with chanting MVP, because that's what happened today in Phoenix. And I think it was deserving with Devin Booker's game tonight. Yeah, it it was absolutely deserving. And, And he finished with 40 points and three assists, but you just can't imagine him having this type of game last year. This is a different type of game. There was a fantastic article posted just today about the Suns um, from an SB Nation writer, Mike Prada, where one of the points he brought up about Booker is that going into this game, these stats aren't updated yet, but 56% of Booker's field goals this season so far have been assisted. 
uh, compared to last season's total of 36%. The way right. that you get to play him when you have a guy like Ricky Rubio on the floor who finished with, let me look at the box score real quick, who finished with 10 assists to one turnover tonight. Uh, just yeah. the types of spots that you're able to put him in, starting him in the corner, having him curl around a dribble handoff, setting a double screen for him and, and having him go around that for a mid-range shot, uh, or sometimes just being able to catch and shoot for a spot-up three, and just not having to create everything for himself has benefited his uh, efficiency so much already. So, uh, yeah, a- another fantastic performance for him. His defense, too. We should talk about that. Yeah, absolutely great. He he was very focused. I think that with Monty Williams, with this whole team trying to change the culture, uh, Devin Booker has put in on himself to be a leader in this team in more than one way. Obviously, he was always the scoring leader for this team, but there's so much more to basketball than that. It's about constantly being focused. It's about doing the right thing, and it's about playing defense first, making defense a priority. Now, will Devin Booker ever be a Kawhi Leonard-level defender? No, he doesn't have the physical capability of being that. He doesn't have the insanely long arms. He's not one of the strongest guys in the league. But what he can do is be focused off ball. And when that, when it, what it takes for Devin Booker to be focused off ball is to constantly be dodging screens because Devin Booker's reputation as a defender is that he can fall asleep off ball. And that means for him to be a good defender, he has to constantly dodge screens because they're going to, whoever's guarding him, they're going to run around three or four screens. And in order to, they say that guys in the NBA don't like defending multiple actions. This is something that coaches constantly say. And it's true. The more things that you could put a defender in, the more likely they are to lose focus and you can score. But Devin Booker has remained focused off ball and he had some really good on ball defensive plays. And for the leader of this team to show that level of focus, that's what it takes to beat a team like the 76ers. And I know what a lot of people who are listening who are fans of the 76ers, if any of them are, what they're thinking is, well, of course, Joel Embiid was out this game. But even still, the 76ers looked pretty good in this game. Yeah, they did. Um, and, and Al Horford was terrific, uh, like you were talking about before. So was Tobias Harris. But the Suns came in with the right defensive mindset, which is they've continued to essentially blitz on the perimeter. They've continued to be aggressive defensively, which is going to lead to a lot of foul calls. And in fact, what we saw was that in, uh, I don't remember exactly what quarter it is, but in multiple quarters, the Sixers were able to get the Suns into the bonus early. But the the Suns picked the perfect time for that because without Joel Embiid, the Sixers were not capable of capitalizing on it. For as good of a shooting night as Al Horford had, and seriously, he had one of the best shooting nights, uh, I'm not necessarily going to save his career, but in quite a while for him, he is not a contact-prone player. He avoids contact. He's the type of guy who prefers those 20-foot mid-range jumpers, which is honestly really frustrating to watch uh, when you're a fan of the opposing team. The same applies for Tobias Harris. He is not a contact-prone player. So the Sixers were able to draw 24 fouls on the Suns and only got to the free-throw line for 20 free-throw attempts, which is fantastic if you're the Suns, whereas if Joel Embiid was playing in this game and the Suns were fouling as heavily as they do and got into the bonus as quickly as they did... The Sixers might have had 40 free throw attempts in this game, and that might have been the difference, quite honestly. But without Joel Embiid in the game, uh, it, it was just really smart coaching by Monty Williams to stick with the game plan, and the game plan worked. Yeah, really fascinating to put uh, Aaron Baines on Ben Simmons to start the game and uh, Dario Saric on uh, Horford on the perimeter and really just kind of focus on not letting... 
Ben Simmons get into the paint. And, you know, interesting to watch those two Aussies guard each other. Well, more Aaron Baines guarding Ben Simmons than the other way around. Horford tend to, tended to take uh, Baines on the other end of the floor, which is kind of what you want for the Suns. That really works to your advantage because the idea is to pull Horford out of the out of the paint. And with Baines having another night where he shoots three of five, and it really is with Baines, you got to wonder is this just who he is now? <laughs> like, is he just a guy that is a flamethrower from three? Is this sustainable? And, you know, how sustainable is it going forward if he starts to miss those shots? And I know this that's a little bit of a concern trolling, but that's kind of what we have to look at from this team. It's, you know, we survived, the Suns survived a really bad game from Frank Kaminsky, especially for how much he's put into this team and how much uh, he, how important he has been uh, throughout this stretch to start this game. Frank Kaminsky missing shots in this game uh, could have really killed them, but somehow they really pulled themselves out of it. And I guess that's what it takes. Like if Devin Booker has to score 40 points on 19 shots to beat a good team, that's going to be hard to beat a lot of good teams. But, uh, you know, this this is a night where they actually did it. And, it, you know, it was really fun to watch beginning to end. And I was really proud of this team because the level of focus it takes against a team like the 76ers that is playing as well as, as they are uh, is just impressive. Really, whether it's the Suns or any team, it, that was just good basketball, which is a real change for us as uh, people who watch every game. So the Suns are now 5-2. and two. What has impressed you the most about watching the Suns so far? Defensive effort. We talked about it last week, but uh, that's not something that we expected. I mean, maybe you expected it from certain role players. You expected Aaron Baines to come in and be uh, an enforcer to some degree. I didn't expect him to play this well defensively. I expected Rubio to come in and lead the team defensively. But basically, I thought those guys could come in and do their best and try to lead by example, and the Suns would still be a below-average defensive team. And what we've seen so far is that they're top 10 in defensive efficiency. Uh, and is that sustainable? At this point, I'm still not sure. Uh, I'd be willing to say it is, but at least for now, through seven games, it looks real. And we've seen effort out of uh, not just the usual suspects, but the unusual suspects as well. We see Booker continue to play with effort on defense and work to change the narrative that uh, he's a terrible defensive player, which is a great first step, even if he hasn't gotten the elite, like you were talking about, that, you know, he's not going to be Kawhi Leonard, but he's working to change that narrative, which is good. So it all starts with defense. And I think if you talk to Monty Williams, he will, how frequently he will direct the conversation towards defense and this team's ability to play the passing lanes and and get deflections and be disruptive with their length um, and turn defense to offense. Uh, I think that's their calling card right now. And Monty Williams is really proud of them changing that reputation. Yeah, I think what's impressed me the most has been just the way that they have won games so far this season. With five wins, they have won. Now, this was the first game where Devin Booker had kind of a monster game, and they won. It was a 40-point game. It was his highest-scoring point of the game, or highest-scoring game of the season. Previous to this, he's only had one game that exceeded his average from last season in scoring. Uh, actually, two games, I should say. It's the Golden State Warriors game. It's hard to even count that one because they're such a they're not really a team. <laughs> and then there was the Clippers. Ouch. There was the Clippers game where, yeah, the Golden State Warriors. We haven't talked about that game, but wow. Uh, that team is a bizarre one. But they won with Booker scoring 22 and getting 10 assists. Uh, they won with him getting 30, and now they won with him getting 40. They haven't really just put themselves on his back in any real game uh, up until now, essentially. This game against the Philadelphia Philadelphia 76ers, they needed Devin Booker to win. Outside of that, 
it has been a team game offensively. They've talked about Monty Williams recently talked about after the Memphis game that they have a we score mentality. It's not an I score mentality. And the idea being always make the right play, move the ball until the right guy gets open and he shoots it. And if he shoots it and he scores, we all score. And that idea of a team, this is this is all this is all platitudes that every coach talks about. This For is sure. the thing. It's it's For sure. basketball is when you boil it down, basketball is relatively simple to talk about. What's difficult is getting guys to buy into it. And I think that takes a lot of things, right? It takes a really good coach, but it also takes the right roster and the right leaders. And up until this season, I think something that had been a talking point for us last season, Sam, you and I particularly, was that there was a void at power forward. There was a void at point guard. But something that I harped on all last season, and you'll remember it, there was a leadership void on this team. I talked about it a lot. There wasn't a proper leader on the court. The closest we had to that last season was Jamal Crawford, and Jamal Crawford was no longer a good player. And that can only go so far when you're not really contributing uh, on the court. So for now, the leadership to be taken by Devin Booker, and Devin Booker taking that very seriously throughout this season, I think is what one of the other things that's impressed me the most because it's it's been nice to see someone grow and develop because he's still a young he just turned 23 years old you know less than a week ago or was it about a week ago now so to to really see him uh take that leadership and and take it seriously he talked about not wanting to score 40 50 point games anymore or how much how little that matters to him i mean these are all things that you want to hear and to see them actually do it on the court has been uh, really 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 impressive well devin booker has always been a master at talking to the media it's always uh, been so impressive to me how he handles uh, just being a professional at this level, which, you know, he's a guy who came into the league at 18 years old, and that's not a given for everybody. I, hell, we should know as Suns fans, it's not a given if you look at guys like Josh Jackson, even DeAndre Ayton, who I think is a great player. But DeAndre Ayton has a lot to learn about how to deal with uh, the media and the types of messages and the types of image he presents about himself that leaks out to us, the fans. Whereas Devin Booker has always just been fantastic with all that sort of stuff. And, and it applies to him taking the steps to becoming a better leader now. But, you know, also the other thing we keep talking about is that Monty Williams and, and James Jones both have empowered him to just trust his teammates. Uh, yeah. You know, he was able to take over this game. But when the traps started coming from the Sixers in the second half, Booker was able to trust his teammates to hit open shots. You know, he could yeah. trust yeah. that Aaron Baines is on a hot streak. Aaron Baines is shooting 50%, literally 50% from three this season. Booker is too now. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Booker's <laughs> part of the 50-50-90 club. As of tonight, yeah. I just checked. Yeah. Um, but he can trust Baines to hit that shot. He can trust Rubio to hit an open shot. He can trust to find Kelly Oubre out in transition. He can trust his teammates to a level that we've never seen before. Even the guys who didn't have a good game tonight, too, by the way. You know, Sarge yeah. and Kaminsky laid an egg tonight, admittedly. And, yeah. and I'm glad that Sarge didn't close out the game again and that it was Mikhail and Kelly out there in the final minutes. But I still think it's very, very important what Monty has done with those two players to empower them, to put the ball on the floor, to try and be creative players to make plays. Because maybe it didn't work out tonight, but when it does work out for those two guys, the entire team benefits as a whole, and that's how you create a 0.5 type of system where you can lead yeah. the league in assists as the Suns are currently doing, or if they're not literally leading the league in assists anymore, they're they're very close to the top. Yeah, and I, and I give all the credit 
in leadership to Devin Booker, but the the because he's the best player, right? And that's the most important thing is to have your best player bought in. But the reality is to have a really good team, you have to have a, a team full of leaders. And that is kind of what they have right now uh, with Devin Booker. But they also have Ricky Rubio. The stuff that Ricky Rubio, he's kind of a genius. I'm really enjoying the experience of watching Ricky Rubio on a game-to-game basis and getting to see the little things that he does in order to affect the game outside of his shooting because his shooting has been basically bad up until (laughs) this game uh, throughout the season. And the idea that he can get somebody in foul trouble, he's so smart at getting in the heads of younger players and younger guards. The way he kind of hits guys off off uh, ball uh, big men he really he really stops them from rolling to the basket and the stuff he does uh, on defense his rebounding the outside of his for a player that can't shoot and i guess we just saw another one in ben simmons he really affects the games in so many different ways so he's one of the leaders there's also aaron baines is a leader on this team so far because to play with that level of intensity constantly while he's on the floor is one thing but the other thing with aaron baines is giving up your body on a game-to-game basis the way he does is insanely painful. Yeah. And the idea that he does not stop doing that is inspiring to other players on the floor. Is this is this the best week of Aaron Baines' career? It has to be, No right? doubt. Well, the best week of Aaron Baines' career, if you asked him, is when he won a championship with the Spurs. Right. And NBA career too, and that's what I mean, that's what his goal is right now with the Suns. Though, if you're looking at uh, yeah. at his stats, this is by far the best Aaron Baines, who is 33 years old, has ever played, bar none. He is the new Brook Lopez. He is Splash Volcano. This this is who <laughs> he is now. This is this is just his game, and it's incredibly impressive, uh, given what you were talking about too, because this team needs Aaron Baines right now. If Aaron Baines takes a hard fall and goes down with an injury right now with 20 games left to go and DeAndre Ayton's suspension, they're kind of fucked. Not going to lie, because Aaron Baines, right now, if I look at this roster, he's the second most valuable player on this team after Devin Booker. Uh, You know, all credit to Ricky Rubio, who's been great. All credit to a number of other players on this team. But Aaron Baines, no doubt, is the second most valuable player. So for him to take the charges that he takes, to be as physical as he is, to take multiple elbows to, to the neck... Every game, whether it's, you know, taking elbows from Valanchunas last game against the Grizzlies um, or from Draymond Green a couple games ago against the Warriors, doesn't matter who it is. He's playing against some very, very physical players. So you're completely right to lay his body on the line like that um, is huge. But yeah, it's definitely the best he's ever played in his career. And I don't think 50% shooting from deep is sustainable, but I think a lot of other parts of his game are. Well, what I what I find interesting so far is this is the game that I expected them to not leave him open, and it didn't happen. You know, like the scouting report is now out. Aaron Baines is shooting fifty percent from three. It's probably smart to cover him at the three point line, but because he's Aaron Baines, because he shoots the ball like it weighs fifty pounds, yep. because he's kind of slow and lumbering. And he sets massive screens. This is part of it, right? The screens get him open, too. It's not just about getting the guards open. He still is left open. And what I'm wondering is at what point does he now get guarded at the three-point line like he's a J.J. Redick or somebody that he's shooting at the same percentage of? Obviously not as fast of a shooter and not as versatile of a shooter. But as efficient of a shooter so far, 
at what point does he get covered at that three-point line, and how does that affect the offense, and, and how does that open up driving lanes for Devin Booker or Kelly Oubre or even Ricky Rubio getting into the lane and, and finding guys open on the perimeter or open on the cuts? Uh, we haven't seen that yet, but you know, I will say this Heat game coming up, maybe I'm jumping to this a little early, but this Heat game coming up is a kind of fascinating game because... The Heat so far, their start on the Eastern Conference is kind of mirroring the Suns' start in that they had lower expectations, much higher than the Suns, obviously, for the Miami Heat with Jimmy Butler, a superstar, but a lot of role players, a lot of guys who nobody expected much out of, and they've been playing very well. And I think a lot of that has to do with how well they're prepared and how well they're coached. And that Heat culture thing kind of really... Uh, showing itself early in the season. And I wonder, I think of all the games we've seen so far, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the Heat play against the Suns and how they cover Aaron Baines and how they cover... uh, Because what I wonder at this point, right, But what, what the Suns did is they put a smaller defender on Al Horford because Al Horford does a lot of standing at the three point line. He still punished him, right? Because he's Al Horford. Do other teams eventually start putting a smaller, faster player on Aaron Baines to fight through screens and fight around screens and guard him? And do the Suns look to post Aaron Baines up in that scenario? It's just kind of an interesting thought, and I don't know what the Heat are going to do, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. I don't think much of a post-up game is going to come out of Aaron Baines, uh, if at all, for the Suns. Maybe a little bit. But I think what you were talking about a minute ago with uh, just guarding Baines at the three-point line in general, if you were a coach and you were faced with the option of you can trap Devin Booker on a screen and leave Aaron Baines open, and you know Devin Booker has a four-year sample size now to show that he is one of the elite scorers in the NBA, that he is one of the best mid-range shots in the NBA, very strong floater game, a variety of moves, and very good at getting to the basket as well. Uh, But it leaves Aaron Baines open, who has a sample size of about 30 made threes last year with Boston and a five-game sample of a hot start with Phoenix to say that he's a good three-point shooter. It's only natural for coaches to say, okay, let Aaron Baines continue to prove that he can make that shot. And luckily for us, he's done a phenomenal job so far, but I think it makes sense why coaches are doing what they're doing. It's going to take Aaron Baines a little bit longer, maybe another 10, 15, 20 games uh, to continue doing this before the entire league catches on and says, this is, you know, we have to go send extra guys uh, to go and, and defend his shot. What you'll notice is there's a lot of writers that are now writing about the Suns. And I think that this game for the 76ers is going to be like a turning point where it's kind of impossible to ignore the Suns. And we're probably going to get a Zach Lowe article. There's probably going to be a story about the, uh, the Suns leading the ringer. And I think a lot of those are going to talk about how sustainable this run is for the Suns going forward and what uh, they're doing and if that can continue uh, in the future. And I think what we're going to talk about, let's take a quick break real quick and let's talk about how sustainable we think this is and how worried we should be about some of the players that maybe aren't playing uh, as well as we expected. So let's take a quick break and we'll talk about that when we come back. Ever see an untucked button down? They look bad. Why? Because they weren't meant to be worn that way. Thankfully, there's Untuck It, the original button down shirt that actually is designed to be worn untucked. No matter your size or shape, Untuck It shirts always fall at the perfect untucked length. And with the holidays near, there's no better gift for your favorite guy who needs an upgrade. There's nothing worse than wearing a shirt that does not fit right. And there's nothing worse than tucking in your shirt in Phoenix where it's 120 degrees. Untuck It is your best option to solve those two problems. 
So whether you're shopping for the perfect holiday gift or just trying to craft a smart, relaxed style of your own, Untuck It is the way to go. Visit untuckit.com and use the code BLUE for 20% off at checkout. That's untuckit.com, U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T.com and promo code BLUE for 20% off. Support for Blue Wire also comes from Manscaped, who's number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. The last thing you want is to use something you do not trust on the area that you need to keep safe the most. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. Their Lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. And don't use the same trimmer on your face as you're using on your balls. That's just nasty. Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why are you not putting it on the smelliest part of your body? Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BLUEWIRE at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job. Your balls will thank you. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BLUEWIRE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and the code BLUEWIRE. Okay, let's talk about some players. So the, the Suns have obviously obviously been playing really well. I think you pulled a stat that said the Suns were three games above 500 for the first time since 2015. Is that the case? Yes, that's <laughs> correct. Since their 39 and 43 season. It's actually kind of funny that season. Wait, 39 and 43? Does that have? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's 82 games, right? Okay. Uh, well, that, that season was kind of funny to me because if you remember, they went into the break. That was when everything fell apart. At the trade deadline, yeah. Dragic demanded a trade and IT was traded. Yes. Um, and they were above 500 for a while that season, and then things just fell apart at the end. Yes. But yeah, since 2015, this is the first time we've been this far above 500. Yes, that was the that was the all-star break where I said Ryan McDonough should have been fired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that was the moment a lot of people said that, that I yep. think that, that his career should have ended, and it, and it continued on for a few more seasons, uh, probably a little too long. But yes, they're now above three games above 500 and they're playing really well. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things that maybe we should talk about that we maybe are a little concerned with. Or maybe we should more specifically, we should talk about how concerned we actually should be with these things. And I think the first player that we should talk about is Mikhail Bridges. Mikhail Bridges is averaging, I think, the least amount of minutes that he has so far in, in this first stretch. Uh, compared to last season, last season, actually last season, I don't know if you know this, Sam, he played the most minutes of any Suns player last season. Did you know that? Um, I did. Maybe. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> At some point, you probably did. He played uh, He played all 82 games, right? That's, I think, yeah. the stat that I hear a lot about that's the That's the main reason why he played the most minutes, right? He played every single game. And at the end of the season, he was just <laughs> playing basically the whole game because of uh, how much he offered defensively. Well, the defense is still there, right? The defense is... Uh, as good as it as has ever been with Mikhail Bridges. In fact, there was an awesome stretch in the 76ers game where Javon Carter and Mikhail Bridges checked in and all hell broke loose on defense and they were just harassing guys all over the court. And that was a huge stretch in the third quarter that led into the fourth quarter uh, defensively. Javon Carter didn't get a lot of minutes in this game because the 76ers are all over eight feet tall, I believe, every single player on the team. <laughs> and Javon Carter can't really get minutes in that case. But Mikhail Bridges, his offense is not quite there yet. I think it's interesting, Sam, you and I had a conversation to start the season with 
what players did we think would have the most trouble with the point five offense? And I think we both said Kelly Oubre Jr. It kind of seems like so far it's actually been Mikhail Bridges. Obviously still beneficial to have on the court. How concerned do you think we should be with how Mikhail Bridges has played offensively to start this season? I think there are elements that we should... This is an annoying cop-out bullshit nuance answer, but... It's, it's the <laughs> reality our, of basketball. As are all of the things that I talk about <laughs> ever. But I think there are legitimate reasons to be concerned, and then I think there are things that we shouldn't be concerned about. I think Mikhail Bridges as a player... Uh, being talented, he's fine. But I think that there are maybe ways that we could use him a little bit better. I think if there's one player on this roster that you could look at and say, maybe Monty needs to think about how to use this guy a little bit better, it's Mikhail Bridges. And the reason I say that is because Mikhail is really advertised as this 3 and D guy, right? At his core, that's what he's supposed to be. Except the problem is, he played 25 minutes tonight, didn't attempt a three-pointer. Yeah. Going into tonight, he attempted in six games seven three-pointers. So now he's he's attempting one three per game as a guy who's playing about 20 minutes per game, which yeah. for a three and D guy, you know, and he's not making those shots either, but it's just, it's, it's not going to cut it. So you have to think about how are you going to better utilize him as a spot up threat. And I think some of that is just maybe an outlier. Maybe some of those shot attempts are going to find him, but he really does look a little bit timid right now. And I think the, the even more frustrating thing about his three-pointers specifically is and some other people on Sun's Twitter have talked about this. If you look at Mikhail Bridges' release, his mechanics are uh, frustratingly inconsistent. Like the way that he <laughs> shoots and releases when he's wide open, he has this slow sort of lumbering hitch. I mean, not as lumbering as a guy like Aaron Baines, but he's got this really slow release, and then he completely changes it up if there's someone coming in his face to contest the shot. But without some sort of consistency, you struggle to develop the confidence that he'll ever be like a great three-point shooter that you can really put your trust in i think he can be a solid three-point shooter when he's left wide open uh, off the catch but i don't think he's necessarily a guy who can come and run off a screen and catch it sort of off movement and shoot uh quickly like some other players on this roster like devin booker or you know even to an extent guys like dario Saric and tyler johnson are capable of doing that sort of thing i don't see the suns being able to do that with mikhail bridges yet now, I will no. say on the flip side of things, his three hasn't looked great, but but just before I finish, one thing I really want to give him credit for, he's looked great cutting to the basket, and yes. that's really where he's excelled so far. The reason I'm not worried about McHale overall, I think he'll get a shot back, but above all, I think he's a phenomenally uh, intelligent basketball player. He knows where to be, he knows where to find cutting lanes, and he knows that with a point guard like Ricky Rubio, he'll be able to find those cutting lanes. Um, the Suns, so far this season... And again, it's a small sample size, I know, but are second in the NBA in scoring off of cut plays, which is way up from last season when they were middle of the pack, about 15th, if I'm remembering correctly. So for them to be second, a huge reason for that is because of guys like Mikhail Bridges and Kelly Oubre, who have been great at uh, finding open lanes and, and taking advantage of bad off-ball defense by the opposing teams. Yeah, with Mikhail Bridges, it's just he's so smart and he's so good at defense that he finds ways to be an effective player on the court, even if he has been a relative nothing on offense uh, up until essentially the Memphis game. I think in the Memphis game, there were some moments where he really figured out how to find ways to be effective on offense, maybe without having that ability to catch and shoot, which is the weirdest thing with Mikael Bridges because he did that in Villanova. It's 
he actually was a guy that can catch and get a three-point shot up relatively quickly uh, on that team. And for whatever reason, that has somehow uh, been zapped away from him uh, Space Jam style, and he's not able to get that three up as fast as he used to, and his and his release looks awkward. I guess it's because he was briefly drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers, and when you're drafted by the 76ers, you forget how to shoot for a while, and you, and you kind of have to shake that out of you. Uh, but he's finding ways to be effective on on offense by cutting, just like you said. And I think when you play with a player like Ricky Rubio, and we've seen it in the past as Suns fans with Steve Nash, it takes a little time to get used to playing with those guys because they're capable of finding you in ways that 99% of other NBA players cannot. And that means that you have to get more used to cutting and have your hands ready and be ready to catch the ball Interestingly, he had an awesome dunk tonight, which was an offensive yeah. foul on Aaron Baines, who was essentially holding the defender back underneath the basket, who Mikhail Bridges may have actually posterized uh, had Aaron Baines not committed that foul because Mikhail Bridges, his arms are so long, and it, it's a weird thing with him where it doesn't feel like that matters at all on offense for him. It matters a lot on defense. But for for whatever reason, he hasn't found the ways of using those long arms on offense. It's just, and I guess the overall question is how concerned should we be about this? I'm not really concerned at all. Now, does it maybe lower, if he can't hit that three, does it maybe lower how good of a player I think that Mikhail Bridges can be in the future? A little bit, yes. But how concerned am I? Not really, because he's what he's good at or what he was good at uh, defensively, he's still very, very, very good at that, and that means that he's going to be uh, effective on the floor regardless. You have to look at the system that the Suns are running to to really understand where Mikhail fits into this and why Kelly has been successful and Mikhail hasn't. Because what the Suns are doing on offense right now, and a lot of people have pointed to this online as well, is they're running a lot of horns plays. And what horns is, is it's also called an A set on offense. It looks like you've got It doesn't have to be your point guard, but you've got your ball handler at the top of the key. You've got your two bigs, your four and five at the two elbows. And then you've got the other two players in the corners, which, you know, if you visualize, it looks like an A. What this does is it really focuses on creating... It's a flying V. It's a flying flying V. It's a flying V. Yeah, maybe it's more of a V than an A, although it's called an A set, not a V set. No, it's an A, yeah. But um, uh. It creates more opportunities for your ball handler and your four and your five. And the reason it works for the Suns so well right now is because the four and the five for them have been guys like Dario Saric. Any combination of Dario Saric, Frank Kaminsky, and Aaron Baines where all of those guys are able to pop out and hit the three. But equally, all of those guys are able to roll in, catch, and quickly fire out to shooters who are potentially on the corner. What running a lot of plays in the set, though, does is it really limits the options of what you're able to do if you're those guys kind of just standing there waiting in the corner. Now, Kelly Oubre, in addition to hitting corner threes, in addition to cutting to the basket, how he's able to capitalize off this set is he will come off of dribble handoffs for him. The big will sort of cut out sort of to the wing uh, with a dribble handoff and hand it off to Kelly Oubre, who's able to use his athleticism and his explosiveness to drive to the rim. If Mikhail wants to get more involved in the offense without just having to rely on three-point shooting and cutting, that's sort of who he has to model his game after. That's how he gets more involved in the offense. He needs to learn to use his quickness, to learn uh, to use his length, and to take those dribble handoffs and be 
a more creative and more explosive player who's really willing to drive to the rim and punish defenses that way because we've seen it before that he's capable of making plays for others. You know, he had stretches of games uh, during his rookie season where he was a very creative player, averaged a good amount of assists. We just haven't seen it from him in this particular system yet uh, because he's sort of just spent so much time kind of looking timid in that corner. But I think it's going to come eventually. And I think it's been encouraging that I am seeing him drive more. That's sort of just a anecdotal thing. I don't have the statistical evidence for it pulled up uh, for this episode. I'll be looking at it more in the future. But I do think uh, he is driving to the basket a little bit more. I just want to see him continue to sort of push his game in that direction because that's how he can be an effective player. Yeah, exactly. And I think actually the the Horns conversation actually fits nicely into the how concerned should we be about stuff (laughs) conversation because specifically Coach Nick from uh, what is it called? B-Ball Breakdown? Uh, on, yes. on on YouTube, uh, did a video on Are the Suns Real? Which is going to be, by the way, every article about the Suns over the next 24 to 48 hours. How real is this uh, from the Suns? And he talked about uh, the Suns running a lot of horns, and he said that can become uh, relatively predictable. I'm not really concerned at, uh, about that, really, because that's what the Spurs did, so this doesn't feel weird. The thing is about horns is there's so many options off of horns and they flow so nicely into a pick and roll if stuff breaks down at all because generally it's it's a weak side uh, thing, right? That two guys are on one side and three guys are on the other. And I think what's interesting about what you said about the DHOs with uh, Kelly Oubre Jr. or with Devin Booker, what I like about those dribble handoffs is they'll set a staggered screen for guys off ball so that the dribble handoff is generally the second screen that the defender is hitting. Uh, There was a really great one today where Booker was in the corner, Baines had the ball at the top of the key, and Saric was at the wing between Booker and Baines. Saric set the first screen for Devin Booker, and then by the time Devin Booker was getting the ball from Aaron Baines, that massive Aaron Baines screen was the second screen on Josh Richardson, and that put Josh Richardson on... Devin Booker's hip and behind him, and that created what is a very difficult shot for a normal player, but an easy shot for Devin Booker, which is that short mid-range shot, which is a layup for him. And I think it's those kind of intricacies and those kind of changes with the horns that they've been using so far that becomes effective. And I think Kelly Oubre Jr. has benefited from it. But most of all, Devin Booker, who actually was not very effective off of DHO's last season, has really figured it out so far this season and as evidenced by his 40 points on 19 shots, which is completely insane. I'm not really concerned personally about the horns thing, about them constantly running horns because they seem to be doing it really well. Am I a little more concerned about it when DeAndre Ayton comes back offensively? A little bit because I think one of the biggest advantages for the horn set Uh, as Mike Prada talked about in his article, is that there's only one guy in the paint at a time, only one cutter at a time for the Suns, which really opens it up. And that means that that kind of has to be DeAndre Ayton because that's what he does. Yeah, but that's that's a good thing. Right, because he's the best at it. To an extent, it's a good thing, yes, because as much as I talk about Mikhail Bridges and Kelly Oubre cutting, it's nice to see them cut, but no one's got better role gravity than DeAndre Ayton. DeAndre Ayton... Uh, has amazing role gravity 
up there with the best in the league. So to have the advantage of horns uh, at its best is the duality of it. You set the double sort of staggered screen up top. And if you've got DeAndre Ayton on one side and Dario Sarge or Frank Kaminsky on the other side, with Sarge Kaminsky popping out to the three and DeAndre Ayton being one of the best rollers in the NBA, that's that set at its best. The problem with it right now, and and really it's not a problem because the Suns, so far, they're a very efficient offensive team and they're 5-2, and so we're splitting hairs, but the worry you have right now is just that Aaron Baines is not that type of pick-and-roll finisher, so to get the most out of it right now, you're just hoping that those shots fall, because really it's a lot more, like, I think where the criticism comes in, this is too predictable, is just that you know that those bigs are popping out for three because that's what they need to do to keep the Suns' offense going, and they need to be able to hit those shots um, in order for the Suns to win. It, they don't all need to hit their shots on the same night. Like tonight, Aaron Baines was hot while Frank Kaminsky and Dario Sarge were missing their threes. But if you have a night where all three of those guys, all you're doing is running horns and all three of those guys right. are missing their threes, right. that this, okay, the Suns are going to lose that night because DeAndre Ayton isn't back yet and they don't really have a guy who has the gravity to roll to the rim, collapse the defense and score that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, tend, I tend to agree with that. I, I just think it's going to be a little interesting to see him DeAndre Ayton when he comes back just being reworked into the offense because of just a big man like Aaron Baines who can shoot threes at that level blows up any defensive scheme a team has because it just makes it really difficult to defend any team that's that's what like you brought up uh, he's the new Brook Lopez that's what Brook Lopez did uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks who had one of the best records in the league last season so you can see how important a player like that is and uh, and it, it's just going to be interesting. And, and DeAndre Ayton is his problems have never been offensive, so <laughs> I'm yeah. not super super worried about it. It's it's more of a how he works in culturally defensively that I'm more concerned with in the right. future. But that's a conversation e- that we can have way down the line. I think equally though, not only do I want DeAndre to shoot threes when he comes back, like I want him to. I want him to roll to the basket, but I want him to be willing to use that as an option to shoot threes. But even more so. Uh, we should talk about the fact, just quickly, Aaron Baines had another six-assist game tonight. And one of the big ad- biggest advantages of a guy like Aaron Baines is he can roll to the rim when he does out of that horn set and then find guys in the corners. I think DeAndre Ayton has been a pretty good playmaker in the past, but there's a lot for there's still a gap between those two players, and there's a lot for him to learn from Aaron Baines about how do you catch in traffic when you don't have much time and have to quickly make the decision between going up right. uh, for the layup possibly, you know, a contested layup over two defenders, or to find an open guy, presumably you have two shooters on those wings or in those corners. Uh, It's a tough decision to make at the NBA level, but Aaron Baines is showing like a real skill for it right now. And so it's good to have him as a guy who DeAndre Ayton can learn from uh, with regard to that as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I I think that DeAndre Ayton has those capabilities. He showed that more in college than he did last year. He did. He, he, He wasn't really much of a playmaker for the Suns last season, and I actually uh, thought he would have been. In fact, before the season on YouTube, I I made a video where I, where I said, uh, "How can Monty Williams turn DeAndre Ayton into a playmaker?" And that's something that I actually expect to. And I think we've seen a lot of how that can work with uh, Aaron Baines, of course, who's, who's been playing out of his mind. The next thing I want to talk about here is a conversation that's been a, sort of a hot topic with uh, uh, Suns fans, and that's Ricky Rubio's shooting. How concerned should we be that he really has not found the range from three-pointer and he doesn't seem to be able to score on the move very much? Uh, 
obviously the offense is very effective with him on the floor. Uh, and I think that this 76ers game was a great example of how important his shooting is when you're playing a great team. What I think about Ricky Rubio is his inability to shoot does not really affect the Suns when they're playing teams like the Golden State Warriors or the Memphis Grizzlies. But to beat Utah, to beat Denver, to beat Philadelphia, he kind of does have to hit those shots in order for us to win those games uh, effectively. And I think that's that's the whole thing with Utah, right? That's the reason Utah moved on. Now they didn't know Mike Conley was going to turn into a pumpkin as soon as the season started. But <laughs> I think that in order to be effective in the playoffs and against sorry. really it's all right against I'm really still, good I'm teams. still sick but that was also just funny <laughs> uh, against really good teams ricky rubio does have to shoot so of all the things that we've talked about so far i would say that i am mildly concerned with ricky rubio shooting more than anything else and the reason is is that my expectations for this team are now much higher than when the season started i do believe that it's possible for this team to make the playoffs and i think that it's insane that we've mentioned the playoffs now two podcasts in a row on this uh, on this topic, but in order for the Suns to make the playoffs, that has to get better. Now, does it have to be 40%? No, that'll never happen. Can it be 33% where he's making one out of every three shots? I hope so. I think that's the type of thing that it'll take. Yeah, and I tweeted out earlier tonight that with some Suns players especially, they have limitations that we knew about going into the season that just aren't going away. You can't wish away the fact that Ricky Rubio historically has not been a good three-point shooter. He could be a respectable 32-33%. That's what we're both hoping for, it sounds like. But he's not going to be a good three-point shooter. Kelly Oubre, the more I watch him play, is not going to... Like, if he's going up, he's going up. And he's not passing that (laughs) ball, even if there's two defenders collapsing in on him. You have to work around those things because they're just... You can't coach that stuff out of those players. That's just who they are. Uh, With Ricky, I think he still has a decent amount in his offensive game where maybe he could trim the fat uh, out of it a little bit. Like, I don't know how much I like some of these 20-foot, not to get too analytical with it or anything, but like some of these 20-foot mid-range jump shots with him, uh, I don't don't know how much I like him taking those shots. I'd Like, even though he's not the best finisher at the rim, I'd really like him to focus on getting as much penetration as possible because if that's if you're Ricky Rubio that's your best advantage yes. kind of doing what we used to see out of Steve Nash penetrating deep into the paint and then even if you're not the best finisher he's a decent enough one to get the defense hopefully to collapse in if they don't you take the layup if they do there's going to be someone open uh so just i i think it's like little things like that with him like you could trim the fat out of your offense but you're not going to be you're Ricky you know it, we know who Ricky Rubio is he's not going to be a 40% three point shooter and that's okay Part of the reason that's okay, by the way, is because you also have a guy like Tyler Johnson, who, you know, at any time is a great shooter, uh, who could come off the bench and play with next to Devin Booker. Like, the Suns' depth is also just much better this season, and that makes me feel a lot better about whether or not Ricky is a is a respectable shooter. Yeah, and I think what's been kind of fascinating about Ricky Rubio so far is how good he has been at drawing fouls for a player who is not... Uh, an effective, really offensive player as far as scoring. And to be able to draw fouls in in the way that he does, which is a lot of times pretty far away from the basket for somebody who is not really shooting a lot of threes or off the dribble kind of at all, just a few, maybe one or two shots a game off the dribble for Ricky Rubio is kind of fascinating. And I think that's the type of thing when I talked about earlier 
the experience that we have had with uh, Ricky Rubio and watching him on a game-to-game basis, that's the type of thing that I didn't really know about. His craftiness when it comes to uh, drawing fouls and getting guys in foul trouble relatively early in a game, that's something that I didn't really know about. So he can still find ways to be effective offensively. And I think what's been fascinating about him is if you told me that he'd be shooting essentially 20-something percent from three this far into the season, I would not have guessed that the Suns would have won five games by now. I would have guessed that uh, they're doing pretty badly. So, And I think that credit goes to Ricky Rubio for still finding ways to be effective on the floor, and a lot of credit goes to Monty Williams for figuring out a scheme that utilizes players like Ricky Rubio and Kelly Oubre Jr., like you said, in the most effective ways to continue to win. Um, so I would say that I am I am mildly concerned uh, about Ricky Rubio and his shooting as far as this team really reaching their absolute apex and the peak of what they can be this season based on what we've seen so far. Do you agree with that? Yes, because if you look at what Jazz fans say, and, and you can clown j- the Jazz right now for Mike Conley all you want. It's absolutely true that Mike Conley looks awful and Rubio's paying um, he's being paid $14 million less per year and looks like a better player. That being said, what Jazz fans always said about Rubio is, this is clearly a player who can help us get to the first or second round, but when it comes time for playoffs and you need him to hit those big shots, he can't do it, and defense is, you know, key in on that. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if he's going to be around for the for the Suns waving the championship banner. <laughs> but but you can still be you can still be a good team with Ricky Rubio as your starting point guard for sure. Yeah, I I, I definitely And maybe agree. and maybe you can win a championship with Ricky Rubio as your starting point guard. I don't know. I mean, who am I to say? But I I always thought that that was a valid criticism coming from Jazz fans as, you know, as frequently as we give them shit for other things. Uh I think it made sense in what they wanted to do this offseason getting an upgrade at point guard because just when you watch the playoffs, you could see defenses didn't respect Ricky Rubio's shot. And you can already see that this season with the Suns. Uh, so similar to Aaron Baines, he just has to prove them wrong. Yeah, and actually, actually to, to that point I was making about Ricky Rubio, I just looked it up because I had it in the last game. I don't know if this is updated up to tonight. But uh, as of right now, when I'm looking at this on, at the, on the NBA.com website, he's tied for 23rd in the NBA in fouls drawn, Ricky Rubio. And that's actually the same, he has the same amount of fouls drawn per game uh, as Devin Booker, he's sandwiched between uh, Donovan Mitchell and DeMar DeRozan wow. <laughs> for for amount of fouls drawn. And I think that is something that it takes a real craftiness and a mind for the game to be able to draw fouls like that. When you have guys like Donovan Mitchell above him and DeMar DeRozan below him, those are guys who attack. Those are guys who get to the basket. Those are guys who can pull up and shoot at any point on the court. And Ricky Rubio is not that. Do, he does get into the paint, but he's not a threat to shoot at anywhere on the court, and that's a good way to draw fouls. Do you still have that page up? Out of curiosity? I do, I do. Uh, is Kelly Oubre on the list? Uh, let me take a look. I got the top just 40. Curious, just curious, you know. Yes. <laughs> Are you going to bring up what I thought he was going to do this season? <laughs> he's well, not on this first page, which is... Okay, well, that's that's kind of interesting, because, you know, that's, yeah. that's kind of what I think he's good at. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, actually, I don't think here he is. He's he's averaging three point seven, whereas Ricky Rubio and Devin Booker are averaging uh, five, and that's fifty fourth in the league. And I think 
for him, he's not really, and I don't want to be someone that's complaining about the refs here, but he's not really getting the whistle. And that's something that you have to be ready for. That's something that you have to adjust your game for. Uh, because yes, he's getting hammered, but a lot of guys are, the scattering report is out. Kelly Uber is going to try and score on you. Get your hands up, take the hit in the chest, and maybe you and won't. Don't, don't worry on. about the pass out. Yeah, because <laughs> he's not going to pass. Exactly. Just stand your ground. Yeah, it's the TJ Warren thing. Well, and <laughs> yeah. we always, to, to be fair, we always complain that TJ Warren didn't get those calls either, right? Yeah, and TJ Warren, at least with Kelly Uber Jr., he's not falling down and then uh, being unable to get back on defense <laughs> on the other end of the on the other. I mean, that's an actual problem. I, I know I'm not trying to make fun of TJ Warren here, but if you fall on every drive and you're not getting the whistle, you're not getting back on defense. And I think that the main difference between Kelly Uber Jr. and TJ Warren, you can say offensively they're relatively similar, especially. Uh, with T.J. Warren not really hitting his threes like he was last season so far, this season oops, uh, is Kelly Oubre Jr. brings so much effort and energy on defense. And in this 76ers game, uh, picking up Tobias Harris, which, who was absolutely killing us uh, in this game, late in the game, and throwing off their offensive rhythm by not allowing him uh, to get that shot off in the mid-range, which is where he was killing us, that was necessary to win this game. And it doesn't really show up on the stat sheet. So, uh, you know, Kelly Uber Jr., for all that he does uh, offensively, which can be relatively frustrating, he brings so much more outside of that that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, it's it it doesn't matter for the most part, I would say. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. he again had maybe a little bit of a frustrating game for me in the first half, but, you know, he made up for it with, he had some really clutch defensive plays um, in this one. He was the one who had that, nice block in the final few minutes of the game i think so yeah it was actually it was aaron baines who got the block but oh was it because of kelly Oubre jr's defense uh was aaron baines capable of getting that block and i think yeah yeah that's what i mean when i say it doesn't really show up on the on the stat sheet but uh we all saw it happen Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah last player i want to talk about is uh, dario sharich uh dario sharich has been relatively unimpressive so far but what do you actually i'll just let you talk what do you think about dario and how concerned should we be about him if say we want to make the playoffs well we've seen glimpses of being impressed i think right um was it the warriors game where he had five steals or am i misremembering that too uh i can check go ahead and talk and i'll look okay well he (laughs) had one game with five steals where i was like whoa dario sarge has five steals he had one game with you know running the pick and roll and i think like this is, as I readjust here, uh, just really quickly, I think <laughs> with Dario, you're, you're going to get frustrated. It's going to be a frustrating experience with him and Frank both because what Monty's offense calls for is empowering them to be playmakers, recognizing that they're not going to be the same. It's not going to be the same level of precision that you get from Devin Booker or Ricky Rubio. So you're going to have these nights like Dario tonight had one assist to five turnovers. And I'll admit you know, he didn't hit his threes either, and he looked really frustrating to watch. Um, but then you also saw stretches for him where he looked really good. Um, and same yeah. with the Grizzlies game. You know, he was taking uh, pull-up jumpers in that Grizzlies game, and he can run the pick-and-roll, as, as I was talking about a couple of games uh, earlier. So, I don't know. I mean, he's just still such a more complete player than any of the power forwards the Suns have had recently. And... I believe that Baines is not going to be shooting 50% from three the rest of the season. But similarly, Sarich is not going to be shooting 
uh, let's see, he's roughly 30% right now. Sarge mm-hmm. is going to go up. Baines is going to go down. It's mm-hmm. all going to even out. It's all going to be okay, guys. <laughs> like, once these guys even out, we're going to be fine. We have Sarge is a 36% career three-point shooter, and we have a large sample size to believe that that's who he really is. So I don't think he's going to stay a 30% three-point shooter, and I don't think Suns fans are going to remain as frustrated with him for long. I'm really not worried about him um, at all. And yeah. the same goes for Frank Kaminsky, by the way. Like he's yeah. he's going to start hitting his shots too. I think that it's easy to predict that Frank was not going to continue playing like he was early in the season <laughs> throughout the season because he was absolutely on fire. But that's not something that you necessarily need from him in order to be a good team. You do need maybe a little bit better than tonight uh, because it took 19 shots and 40 points for <laughs> Devin Booker by Devin Booker to win this game. Uh, but for Frank Kaminsky, he does have to be a little bit better than that. But it's easy to predict that he wouldn't continue to be as hot as he was. With Dario, the book on Dario has been by Sixers fans and Timberwolves fans that I've talked to online, that he always kind of starts off slow and then picks it up halfway through the season. That might be a conditioning thing. It just might be the way he plays with a rhythm thing going forward. So I'm not super worried about him, and I I agree with you. I think he's going to pick it up, and Baines will probably (laughs) cool off a little bit. But I think with Dario that's interesting is it's the type of things that he's capable of doing that make this team better right now when he's not necessarily hitting all of his shots. It's his ability to hit Devin Booker cutting underneath the basket over a defender on a pass. It's his ability to find guys in the post um, as a as a power forward or sometimes center uh, on passes underneath those high low passes are very difficult very it, it takes a very skilled passer at his size to be able to do that and that that is the type of thing that uh, Monty has used him well but Dario even finding his spots to, to make those kind of plays for other people uh, that makes him valuable even when he's not hitting shots and I think his defense has also been he's actually rated as one of the better defenders on the Suns team so far. So even with Dario, I think that if you look at box scores, you might be kind of worried about him. But if you watch the games and I mean, really watch the games, you it's easy to see how he contributes to this team. And it's easy to see how effective he is already, even without hitting his shots. And once it starts to fall, uh, that's going to be, that's going to be really good for this team, especially if other guys start to cool off. Like you said, um, are there any other players that you want to talk about before we uh, finish off this episode? No, I think I think that's basically it. I'm just really glad that you keyed in on Dario's defense, by the way, because I think that's something that not enough people have pointed out. We're going to start getting to the point of the season where um, some spotty advanced defensive metrics start becoming available or are already publicly available that have a lot of statistical noise sort of associated with them. But as you look at those metrics, at least so far, um, they would seem to point to this idea of Dario Sarge being one of our better defenders, which from a box score standpoint doesn't really make any sense. But if you watch him, I think he's been uh, just very deceptively solid. Um, he doesn't give up post positioning uh, easily. He makes good rotations. Uh, and actually, on the point about good rotations, this is sort of unrelated to Dario and more related to the team in general. But do you want to know a crazy stat real quick? Is mm-hmm. if you look at, and this is why the Suns continue to win games, the percentage of shots that the Suns take from beyond the arc that are wide open, where the closest defender is at least six feet away, the Suns are taking the second most wide open threes 
going into this game, these stats are not updated for uh, after the Sixers game, so I don't know what it looks like after tonight because it hasn't updated yet. But they're taking the second most open threes in the NBA right now, and they are giving up, um, in terms of giving up the fewest open threes to the uh, opponent, they are tied for the Jazz for sixth. So offensively, they rank second in terms of getting the most open looks from the perimeter. Defensively, they rank sixth in terms of giving up the least wide open shots. Just the best of both worlds. Their offense has created open looks, and defensively, there isn't a single player who you can consistently point at uh, as a weak link and saying that guy isn't making his rotations, and the Suns are giving up wide open threes because of it. Yeah. And and you know what that that matches up with the eye test because Aaron Baines has taken twenty six three pointers this season or plus the one season so thirty one I believe so far this season and I don't think a single one has been contested yeah <laughs> because he can't really shoot contested shots and 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 that's the guy that they're leaving wide open so that makes sense and I think the impressive part is the part about the opponents not shooting a lot of open three pointers because of the aggressive style of defense that the Suns are playing so far, which we will try to get into maybe oh, a, little, yeah. a little bit more this week. Maybe, yes, uh, yes. maybe an extra episode it's a, we're, we're hoping. It's a really important thing to talk about. Giving up, uh, just to tease a little bit, giving up open threes and, and the way that opponents shoot against the Suns could be make or break to their defensive scheme for the rest of the season in terms of we talked a lot today about how sustainable their offense is we need to talk a little bit more about how sustainable their defense is but yeah we'll we'll continue to do that maybe later in the week yeah so uh two more games before our next normal episode that is both uh, by the way a bunch of home games in a row here i believe six home games uh in a row but the next two games are miami on thursday and brooklyn on sunday both of those games are interesting. I think that Miami game is going to take a lot of focus because of how well coached they are. And uh, that Brooklyn game, <laughs> that team is very hard to predict. Uh, a lot riding on Kyrie Irving. They're not the team that they were last year. In fact, the Suns are closest to the team the Nets were last year <laughs> as far as uh, coaching and, and play style. Those two games will be interesting. We'll be back after that Brooklyn game. We'll record another episode for you next week. We're hoping to get another special bonus episode this week. So keep an eye out on your podcast apps. Hopefully we'll have another episode coming to you in the next few days. Uh, anything else you want to add, Sam, before we end this one? Nope, that's all. The Suns are 5-2. and two. Let's enjoy it. Six-game homestand, um, or five more home games coming up. So uh, I think maybe, first of all, it's worth mentioning, didn't we say the Suns were going to go 2-1 and one this week on last week's episode and yeah. they ended up going 3-0? Yeah. and oh? They should get a fucking, you know, round of applause for that. And, well, uh, we said 2-1 and one for the games before the uh, Philadelphia game, and we were right about that. Oh, uh, we, we? We predicted we, exactly. We pre- predicted wins we against right Memphis okay. and wins against, a win against Memphis and a win against Golden State and a loss nope. against Utah, which is exactly what happened. And, uh, and then this Philadelphia game, we were planning on recording before it, uh, but then you didn't. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. All right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I misremembered. You're right. Well, I guess we were <laughs> right then. So for us, it's a win-win. But uh, yeah, the the sun should take advantage of this homestand, and hopefully uh, by our next episode, uh, they'll be even better. Yep. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Well, you can just kind of tell it's you know it's it's coming and. I think the best part of watching it is, is knowing that he wants those those challenges and knowing that he wants the ball at the end of the game to, to make something happen. Um, 
I would say, you know, I've been around a lot of really, really, really good players, you know, Hall of Famers. Um, as far as just pure score, like, I think he's probably the best I've seen. You know what I mean? I didn't get to watch uh, D-Wade in his prime, but, you know, he, he really can, he can really do it. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.